Welcome to the War from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. Well, as we promised a couple weeks ago, we're going to bring you the second part of the Battle Station story, The Battle for the Atlantic, Part 2. So here it is from August the 12th of 1943. Broadcasting Company's Department of Special Events, cooperating with the United States Navy, is presenting in a series of four programs a report to the people of the United States on the progress of its Navy in the war being fought in five oceans. Report title, Battle Station. Tonight, the Battle of the Atlantic, Part 2. It's a familiar human failing for a futile challenger entering the ring for a return bout to tip his hand, to speak of new stratagems, of new powers. It rallies his supporters to confidence. This time it'll be different, he says. I got the champ figured out. I'll work in with my left hand inside his right hand lead, and I got a heavier punch this time. A paper hanger entered a war with much that same sort of a statement. In Germany was defeated in 1918 because of the failure of the U-boat. Today our U-boat fleet is powerful. We will not fail again. Right from the feed box. To mix the metaphor straight from the horse's mouth. And containing a high percentage of truth from a man never noted for his veracity. Germany defeated in 1918 because the U-boat failed. 25% true. Today, Germany's U-boat fleet is powerful. True. Germany will not fail again. We shall see. How has the battle gone? The Battle of the Atlantic. Anxious millions have followed its progress from bad... January, ships sunk, 32 ships. To a little better... February, 1943, 20 ships. To worse... March, 1943, 25 ships. But what of the enemy? What are his numbers? What is the state of the morale of the enemy's men beneath the sea? Illustration. Naval officers talk to a member of a captured U-boat crew. He speaks fair English. Lived in this country a few years. Would you rather talk in German or in English? I can speak either language. However the tide of battle has gone for the men beneath the sea, the arrogance remains. Name? Rank? Manfred Holtz. Radio man. How long have you been in the service? Seven years. The Führer's U-boat fleet is not manned by novices. The officers nod. Seven years of experience is not rare in Dönitz's U-boat fleet. Hitler began to build his weapons for the Battle of the Atlantic in 1935 and to train his men. How much action have you seen in the Atlantic? 
All of it. I have fought in the Atlantic since the start of the war. If you give me a chart, I will show you where our sinkings have been accomplished. Get a chart for him. Yes, sir. He's not trying to be helpful. Their invisibility in battle robs them of the glory they believe should be theirs. This fellow now would like to boast. And perhaps to mislead. Here's the chart. Now, if you intend to waste our time with some of the fairy tales they broadcast over your radio... No, no. You will recognize the actions I report. Ah. That's where we got the first of your ships. Off Cape Cod. On what date was that? Oh, sometime late in January. It was very easy then. Simply to follow. Then at dusk. Boom! <laughs> if it was so easy, why did you keep it up? Oh, there was no use taking chances close to your shore when there was unprotected shipping elsewhere. A uh, plane patrol gave you trouble? Some. Some. And our coastwise convoys? Some. Some. As I say, the chances were uh, unnative. Needless. Yeah. Needless when there was unconvoyed shipping elsewhere. And you haven't had such a good time lately. Oh, there is some trouble, but... We are not entirely helpless against convoys. No, do you believe that? Do you know how many men you've lost? No, and neither do you. And in this, he is partially correct. Unofficial estimates in April placed the Nazi losses then at 12,000 trained officers and men lost or taken prisoner. But this man doesn't know. Only Admiral Dernitz knows accurately. Where is your control center located? If you should find out, I would like to know. Somewhere in France is the Allied guess. The Nazis boast frequently that Allied bombers fly over it regularly, their camouflaged U-boat control center. How many U-boats do you think you have left? I would be interested in knowing that, too. No, he doesn't know. Between four and five hundred is a frequent guess. A hundred and fifty of them on the hunting ground simultaneously. But what of this fellow's morale? Do you think you have a chance of winning the war? There's not the slightest doubt we shall. Yes, in March, the Nazi U-boat crews still had the highest morale of the German fighting forces. They were tough, hardened, and they were winning the Battle of the Atlantic last March. This meant postponement of the dreaded Second Front in Europe for it could not be launched until the steady flow of material of war across the Atlantic was assured. Yes, their morale was high in March, for in February, they had had good news. This is Berlin calling, the overseas service of the Reichsrundfunkgesellschaft. Here's an important announcement from the Führer's headquarters. Vice Admiral Karl Dönitz has been appointed by the Führer to succeed Admiral Erich Rehler as Grand Admiral of the German Navy. Here's a recording of the historic pledge Grand Admiral Dönitz has made to our Führer. The gesamte deutsche Kriegsmarine wird in Zukunft in den Dienst des unbeschränkten U-Boot-Krieges gestellt werden. The entire German Navy will henceforth be put into the service of inexorable U-Boat warfare. <laughs> was high in the Nazi U-boat fleet in March. The moment of the supreme test had arrived, and their victory was in sight. It was all out now on both sides. London has announced new attacks by the Allied air forces on Nazi submarine bases at Saint-Nazaire and Lorient. Blows aimed where they would hurt. 
For Dennis's raiders must hold up at least two weeks for overhauling and restocking between each sally into the hunting ground. Many weeks longer for repairs to depth-bombed submarines. Blows aimed where they would hurt. In the United States, convoy escort vessels were coming down the ways in unnumbered scores. This, too, was an answer to all-out submarine warfare. The showdown in April. The battle will be won or lost here... Los... Fire! Or here... A naval officer turns the dial of a submarine locator sounding device. You've got one, sir. I got something. Bridge. Getting something on the sound detector. 500 yards broad on the starboard bow. Right. Progress is tearing the cloak of invisibility from the raiders beneath the sea. You are hearing first a tone sent out by the escort vessel, then that tone as it returns, reflected from the hull of a submarine. And the U-boat, lying beneath the surface, is like an ostrich with its head buried in the sand. Set! Fire! The Battle of April. The United Nations waited for word of its outcome. No figures, but by the first week of May, cautious words of the outcome began to be heard. From Washington. A statement by Admiral Ernest J. King, United States Commander-in-Chief, an officer not noted for his optimism in the matter of U-boat warfare. The submarine menace is being dealt with. We expect to bring it under control now in four to six months' time. Then from London. Winston Churchill. Never hasty in his declarations, in substance announced... In May, for the first time, the Allies destroyed more submarines than the Nazis can build in a month. This has been our goal in the anti-submarine campaign. In fact, we did not expect to attain... This rate of destruction until 1944. And then, from of all places, Berlin. An official Nazi publication, not given to understating successes, nor to overstate failure. However untiring U-boats fight against the American convoys in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, it is not possible to strangle enemy supply lines. won the Battle of April? Losses in April, 14 ships. Much lower than March. The Battle of May? Losses in May, 9 ships. Lower still. June. How went the battle in June? A joint British-United States statement. June losses from submarine attack were the lowest since the United States entered the war. Fewer submarines are appearing in the Atlantic. They almost never attack the main convoys. But the sinkings of Axis submarines continue substantial and satisfactory. Substantial and satisfactory. How with Grand Admiral Dönitz's gastric ulcer? He had boasted that he knew all the answers. Is he at a loss for an answer to the July questions? 
A professionally blithe voice from Berlin answers... Our Admiralty announces that the Reich U-boat fleet has been summoned to home bases to be equipped with a new secret weapon, promised by Grand Admiral Dönitz as the answer to increased Anglo-American shipping. What the new secret weapon is has not been hinted at. A little doubt is allowed that it will be... Secret Weapon, a timely variation on an old theme. Yes, the U-boat fleet disappeared from its old hunting grounds, while the United States' not-so-secret weapons continued to take to the air, to the sea, and old techniques received new polish. The weapons, DD, DE, SC, PBY, YP, PC, K2, the cutter, destroyers, destroyer escorts, sub-chasers, patrol planes, converted yachts, patrol ships, blimps. K-2 is a blimp. At the start of the war, there were just four. Today, there are many more. Their specifications and performance an open secret. Their effectiveness, well known to the raiders that lurk below the waves. K-2, 250 feet long, can cruise up to 2,000 miles at 55 miles an hour. With a crew of eight, armament including machine guns, bombs, and depth charges. They have the ability to patrol 2,000 square miles of ocean every 12 hours, have a visibility of five miles in all directions, can see as deep as 70 feet below the surface. K-2s hover over the clues, oil smears, air bubbles, the glow of the U-boat at night, the feather of the submarine's wake. K-2s were there over the Atlantic as the battles of April, May, and June were fought. Now, of DD, DE, PC. PCs are patrol ships, 170 footers of steel construction. And where are they built? On the shores of the Great Lakes, along the New England coast, and inland. These are the sub-chasers, direct in line of descent from the famous Cinderella boats of the First World War. PC has greater speed than its forebear, greater maneuverability, and its gunpower is rapid fire. It's a match for any submarine in a duel. PC was there, fighting the Battle of the Atlantic in April, May, June, July. PC is there now. All were there. All the weapons, old and new. Here is the destroyer escort. An effective weapon that did its part. Illustration. The USS Vigilant in bright daylight is patrolling her position in the convoy screen. The crew is alert. More so than usual. Okay, Joe, you can grab your sleep now. This is your watch? Uh-huh. Had any excitement? Two depth charge attacks. You didn't sleep through them, did you? No, no. I mean, you had any excitement since then? Nah, but the skipper figures the U-boats are still around. Waiting for a chance to slip inside the escort ring. Well, if they're going to try, I got my special brand of hell ready for them. Get your sleep, Joe. No sleep for Joe. Not for a while. For the phone from sound man to the bridge speaks. Contact, Captain. Broad on the starboard bow. Range 500 yards. How good is it? Very good. Pretty sure it's a submarine. Come right to 015. Right to 015, sir. General quarters, Captain. Not this one. All depth charges ready, sir. Very good. Uh, 
The engine room telegraph on the ship's bridge shows her going full speed. All hands are tense as she reaches the estimated point of dropping her ash cans. It's the skipper's judgment when and where to drop them. The sound man has been feeding him information as to the bearing and distance of the hidden submarine. Suddenly from the captain... Right full rudder. Right full rudder, sir. Intently, the skipper has his eyes glued on the stopwatch, watching that second hand closely. Stand by to drop depth charges. Drop one. One drop. The second hand moves a few points on his stopwatch. Fire throwers. Both throwers fire. Drop two. Two drop. Drop three. Three drop. The charges explode at their set depths, and the DE bounces on the water's upheave from below. The men cling to railings and stanchions until the spray off the fantail has fallen, and the sea slowly recovers from the shock of explosions underwater. What's the matter, Joe? Can't you sleep? Are you kidding? Do you think we got a nibble? Oh, no. Just waiting to see. That slob submarine didn't surface by mistake or something, did it? No, no. It was under. Picked up the contact on the sound device. Man, oh, man. Would I like to see one of them babies come up with oil spouting out of it? Submarine breaking water off port quarter! Submarine breaking water off port quarter! Less than 600 yards away lies the long, gray hull of a Nazi U-boat. It's decks awash. The skipper on the deck trains high-powered glasses on the quarry. Men coming from his conning tower. Think they're quitting, Captain? All deck guns open fire! Oh, so they want to fight, eh? The deck guns on the DE speak deeply and solemnly and often of destruction. The rain shortens, and the shells find their marks in the plates of the submarine, and the 20-millimeter slug slice across the U-boat deck. Then the sub settles, points its bow toward the sky, and dives to the bottom. The new destroyer escorts, along with the valiant older types of ships, have struck their blows in the showdown fight. No, these are not secret weapons. Theirs are not cosmic punches. Workmanship, design, and the indefinable, the intangible, the uppercase X in the equation of power account for their successes. The uppercase X, what is it? Call it TM. Not an official designation for this scale-tipping fighting weapon, but let's call it TM. Gunnets cannot produce the TM. Not as well, not as many. This is just one phase in the development of TM. A large room, large and dark, and there's the tingle of alertness in the air, not seen, for it is very dark, just sensed. Stage one. Gradually, there is a suggestion of light filling the room. This is the interior of a room. There is a ceiling overhead, yet the haze of dusk fills the room. Stage two. Dusk is wiped out in just a moment, and the room is flooded with the luminescence of moonlight, and with the introduction of this light, young men can be seen staring unblinkingly into the void. Stage three. Moonlight gives way to the gray of dawn. This is a phase, a feature of the development of the Navy's most vital weapon, TM, trained men. In special courses of training directed by the commander-in-chief of the Atlantic Fleet, they are learning, being trained, 
to see in near darkness, to be armed in combat with a vital power, trained eyesight. These are TM, successor to the ersatz product now rapidly vanishing in obsolescence, the totalitarian Superman. These are trained free men, Navy weapons that have proved their worth. Navy gospel. Ships without well-trained men are only ships. Ships with well-trained men are men of war. The eyes that have sighted the subs, the hands that have set the courses, set the fuses, fired the guns, have written the record that proves the worth of the Navy's intangible. The uppercase X in the equation of power. Trained men. Yes, we have one of these men here in the studio tonight. He is Joseph K. Brainerd, Seaman First Class, Regular Navy. Where are you from, Joe? Wycliffe, Ohio. That's just east of Cleveland. Well, I guess battle stations means more to you than just the name of a radio program. It sure does. It means life or death to us in the Navy. When general quarters are sounded and we rush to our battle stations, we know that we must get there in a few seconds, whether we're dressed or not, regardless of what we've been doing. Not only our own lives, but the life of our ship depends on every man doing his own job in time of danger. What about the rest of the time, Joe? There isn't any other time. Any moment may be dangerous on a ship at sea in time of war. That's why the Navy takes such great pains to train us for action. That's why we study so long and so hard. Why we go through drills. Why we get every detail of our job down pat and go over it time and time again. A ship is run by teamwork. Teamwork involving every man aboard. At times, does the training get tiresome? No question about it. At times, we get tired of standing watch for hours without anything happening. Especially when you're bitterly cold, and you're soaking wet from spray coming over the bow, and it's dark, and there may be a German submarine 400 yards away, and you can't see it. If you try to relax for five minutes, that can be a bad five minutes. Why, Joe? You might come to with a start and see a suspicious-looking object out there in the water. It might turn out to be an empty barrel, or the wake of a porpoise, or even a funny breaking wave or a low cloud in the horizon. But if there's the least bit of doubt in your mind, you pass the word and immediately sound general quarters. Then a guy's off watch compiling up on deck, some with their pants or shoes off, but all of them with their life jackets on, ready for anything. What happens if it's a false alarm? Nothing. Nobody squawks about being pulled out of bed or away from shower or the card game. They know it might have been a submarine, and that they might have been in the water by then. They just say, that's okay, boy, you keep your eye on the water. And if you see something else funny, just give us another buzz. We'll be right back up. These false alarms and the day-by-day routine on shipboard must get you down at times. Not exactly, but the tenseness of waiting is bad sometimes. It's a tight feeling, exactly like the feeling you get in a dressing room before a football game. But it goes away as soon as general quarters sounds and you're ready to do your assignment. But aside from the calls to battle stations, every day is pretty much the same. It's a routine of four hours on watch and eight off. No matter between any day in the week, we're always surprised when we're reminded that it's Sunday and time for church services. Maybe nothing will happen all day, but it's still important to be ready for anything. And your listeners are mighty glad that you are ready. Thank you, Seaman Joe Brainerd. Now on our list of forces in the battle, ESF. ESF. No, not a surface ship. Not a secret device, not a secret technique. ESF is the Eastern Sea Frontier, whose defense is controlled by closely integrated frontier units directing the fine science of U-boat detection, directing the task forces that smash the marauders. 
Somewhere on the Atlantic coast is located the headquarters of the eastern sea frontier. One of the several sea frontiers doing equally valiant work in the Battle of the Atlantic. Hitler would sell what's left of his soul to have a man here even for a few minutes. For on the wall of the plotting room, a huge map of the Atlantic is dotted with small numbered colored shapes of celluloid that show at a glance the situation of every convoy, every ship, every patrol plane, every blimp that plies the waters of the Atlantic, and the location of every reported enemy U-boat. This is the nerve center. Seated at a long table facing the map, silent naval officers, each a specialist in his phase of U-boat eradication. It is only a matter of seconds that the report of a sighted sub is flashed by radio and telephone to this center, and a matter of only a few seconds more for these silent men to dispatch planes and surface craft to the attack. This is the headquarters of the United States Navy's Eastern Sea Frontier, a vital, powerful force in the Battle of the Atlantic. The Battle of July is ended, and the United Nations await the significant news of its outcome. The tenth of each month has been the assigned day for the joint release of United States and British communiques on the tide of battle. Two days overdue now, the report may have come with a distinguished recent visitor to Canada, Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Our history of the Battle of the Atlantic has been brought to the present moment, with just one more development to add. It was a month ago that Grand Admiral Carl Dönitz called his pack home to be refitted with a secret weapon. A week ago, the German radio fairly crackled with its news. This is Berlin calling. Our Admiralty has announced its latest masterstroke in the inexorable U-boat warfare against the Anglo-American forces. The Reich submarines have been equipped with a device that will prevent their detection, make them completely invisible. A direct answer was forthcoming from the London radio. This is London. The British Admiralty has just announced an attack by a pack of 30 submarines on an Allied convoy. Two of the U-boats are reported definitely sunk, and one other is quite likely sunk. None of the ships of the convoy nor of the escort vessels was damaged. It will be for some future historian to record whether it will be the Allied Navies or the Axis Naval Command, who adds the final perfecting Philip that makes the Axis U-boat completely invisible. But the Battle of the Atlantic goes on. The final score has not been written. Final victory will take more ships, more planes. American workers in the factories have helped bring the battle to the present favorable turn. It is in the workers' power to help bring the final victory. Keep sending the weapons, America. Your Navy will put them to good use. This has been the second in a series of four programs prepared by the Special Events Department of NBC in cooperation with the United States Navy. The script was written by Charles Gussman. The music was composed and scored by Leo Kempinski and the orchestra directed by Joseph Stopak. 
The production was under the direction of Joseph Mansfield. Next Thursday at this time, Battle Stations tells the story of the development of the Navy's air arm, of the pioneering that has given the air arm its striking power, the first launching of an aircraft from ship deck, the first landing of an aircraft on ship's deck, pioneering with the catapult, with dive bombing, the first air crossing of the Atlantic. Next week on Battle Stations. Costello speaking, Battle Stations was presented in New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. Well, a great story, and I think, you know, just listening to it, not myself any strategic expert, but it seems like the German naval uh, strategy was very uh, one-dimensional, which made it so vulnerable. And that seems to be the point the episode was making with it's pointing to all of these different systems that Americans were using. And as they said, nothing really top secret about the uh, uh, machinery, but really uh, a story of perseverance and continual improvement in order to turn the title on the Battle of the Atlantic. That will do it for today. If you uh, have a comment, email me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. I welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during World War II. Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, kencurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net